Welcome to Public Power Underground, Northwest Public Power's premier weekly infotainment series that covers Northwest public power and public power adjacent news. Our series began as an awkward force fun time for the power department 47 weeks ago when we altered our work arrangements at the start of an ongoing pandemic. It has evolved into a forum into a forum to chat with public power professionals about niche topics that are entertaining to an extremely small group of electric utility enthusiasts. And if you're listening to this, that means you. On today's show, we'll get an update on Northwest Power Markets on Aaron Reports and check in on public power and public power adjacent news on Public Power Desktop, where we talk to the publisher of the Energy News Digest, the legend, Joel Meyer, and friend of the underground, John Morris, stops by to talk about electric vehicles. I'm your host, the voice of the underground, Brian Fawcett, and joined by the star of Aaron Reports and co-star of Public Power Underground, financial analyst, Aaron Guillory. Good afternoon, Aaron. Good afternoon. How's your, uh, how's your week going so oh, far this morning? It's been an interesting, <laughs> interesting week. Really good day yesterday and a, you know, quite... An interesting morning for sure. Awesome. Kicking off the weekend strong. <laughs> you know it. Gotta have something to look back and laugh on. Yeah. How about you? Oh, you know, going well. Nerded out with um, uh, Eric Herringer at uh, Piper Sandler this morning. It was very exciting. There were lots of exciting accounting trigger words like tax exempt and bond ratings thrown out there. It was, it was fantastic. Lovely morning. <laughs> tax exempt. That sounds like a great great topic. I yeah. might have to dive into that further. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on. Our other co-star, Public Power Underground, the coding wizard of R and Python, our resident Genesis apprentices, a Reddit user, Banjalele Virtuoso, and current power analyst, Ian, the neural network Bledsoe. Thanks for being here, Ian. This is very uh, Game of Thronesy, by the way. I'm really excited about your intro. Yeah, I like the idea of just giving giving out like 15 nicknames at once so I don't have to do like a separate event to to get each one. So thank you for that. I thought about throwing Breaker of Chains in there, but it didn't, <laughs> didn't flow. Didn't, didn't flow. Behold, I am become the destroyer of worlds. <laughs> okay, lastly, the executive producer of Public Power Underground and manager of the power department, Paul Dockery. How's the executive doing today? I'm doing good. I really leaned into the executive producer uh, role this this week. Um, I was very busy on other things, including performance reviews for some people. Um, and, I, and we got a puppy. So I uh, didn't have as much time for the lead writing responsibilities. And I got to share that responsibility around and very much leaned into the executive producer role. I apologize in advance for my weed. I love it. It's going to be great. Very, I have a lot of faith in you and Aaron in the end to carry the weight when, uh, when I'm distracted. <laughs> Is the puppy going to make an appearance today or we save uh, I'm really hoping for some puppy content on public power underground shortly, but the puppy's currently at the vet uh, getting checked out. So not in the building. You might have to have like a, a puppy based episode. I know Ian has a, recent puppy as well so i believe ian well, your puppy is also at the vet yeah yep it'd so. be really cute if it was the same vet and they were meeting for the first time but i believe they're probably <laughs> different vets, it's different vets yeah. 
All right. I think we will we'll get started here. Uh, we'll, we'll start checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, Aaron Reports. Love it. Let's get into it. All right. <clears throat> this is Aaron Reports, built to take a few minutes to cover Northwest market indicators for February 11th, 2021. I'm Aaron Guillory, and I've got your market update for the week. April, September flows. The Dow's are expected to be at 96% of normal, up 0.16% from last week. We're back with more damn reporting this week. Midday outflows the Dow's were 174.20 KCFS. Taking the 84 east, scaling north to Grand Coulee Dam, midday elevation was 1280 feet, and outflow was 144.80 KCFS yesterday midday. Ansergy aggregates no-tell sites into snow water equivalent for a basin or hub. Their aggregation of snow for BC hydro generation is 119% of normal. For mid-sea, it's right at normal. And aggregating all the snow in the Columbia River Basin that'll flow through Bonneville Dam they estimate there's an 87% chance or 87% of normal snow blanket. Mid-sea power settled at night around 2599 per megawatt hour. Daylight brought 3243. High 43, low 195. This week lowest came from on-peak power pricing. Uh, August power at Mid-sea dropped a skosh at 67.85 this week compared to 68.10 the last time reported on a public power underground. Henry Hub March futures opened at 291 per MMBTU yesterday, and August opened at 3018. Sumas gas in August closed at about a 22.5 cent discount to Henry Hub, indicating that Mid-sea August power is priced at a 24,000 heat rate. In bond markets, one Washington public utility district issued two term bonds maturing January 1st, 2044. One 2% borrowing for 47.19 million at 65 bips and another 2% bond for 48.045 million at 50 bips. The CPC reported SST departures maintained at negative 0.7 for a Nino 3.4 index and continues to anticipate a 95% chance La Nino will continue through the duration of winter 2021 with potential transition to Enzo neutral during the spring of 2021. Spending a beat at Bonneville's balancing authority, uh, peak load this past week hit 9,200 on February 10th at 7.45 in the a.m., a full grand and change up from last week's peak, running parallel shifts across the board. Both hydro and wind gen were about 550 to 600 megs higher in the same interval compared to last week's coincident peak with hydro gen at 12 uh, 12,100 and conventional thermal units at about 1,200. Wind took a well-deserved break and dropped down to 10 megs from 1750 last week for the same interval. This week in NOAA forecasts, temp in the region has a 33 to 60% chance of being below normal, while precipitation in the region has a 33 to 60% chance of being above normal in the 6 to 10 day outlook, with a 33 to 40% chance of being above normal, with some areas right in the normal range in the most recent one-month outlook for NOAA. And that's all we've got for this week. Back to you, Brian. Thanks, Eric. Anytime. <laughs> so can we agree that uh, the proper way to pronounce the uh, the El Nino La Nina index is Enso, not Enzo? Ooh. I have never heard it pronounced Enso. I is think Enzo, Enzo is, is right. Um, there's Enzo okay. Ferrari. You may be have, getting it confused with uh, yes. Enzo Ferrari. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> is it a Z or an S? It's, it's an, an S. An S. An S so. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I, yeah. I don't have it. Do I have it handy? I actually I don't. don't. I'm, I'm not um, a weather geek. So what is Enso neutral? Is that just not La Nina or El Nino? El Nino Southern Oscillation is what the acronym stands for. Okay. So. Well. I think Negative neutral. is La Nina, positive is El Nino, zero is neither El nor La. 
I think or, that and so would neutral. be the neutral. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fair to say we are in a pretty strong La Nino season. It does, uh, there were some worries on the uh, Northwest River Forecast Center's most recent hydro update that maybe those La Nina conditions wouldn't translate into a high uh, hydro year that is the normal trend. But I have hope actually this week. You know, we talked a little bit about snow uh, was not trending up as we would like this early or this late in the the snow season, but uh, this past week, actually, you did see some snow builds in the, you know, Idaho, Montana, Rockies, which for some reason, my internet is so terrible that I can't pull up those graphics. There they are. You can see some steps up uh, on these snow tell sites, which is really helpful. <laughs> and I, I do want to give a shout out to Anson G for letting us use uh, their indicators on public power underground. Uh, we are subscribers and uh, they have some great aggregation of data. I really like the way they aggregate the snow tell sites within the basin. So thank you, Answer G. All right, moving on. Uh, next up, we have our weekly walkthrough Northwest Public Power and Public Power Adjacent News and a segment we like to call Public Power Desktop. Ian, I think you're starting it off this week. Yep. And our favorite story we've covered since starting Public Power Underground, rude. We're super excited that Seattle City Light is expanding its utility-owned electric vehicle public charging options. It recently installed five new EV chargers in Tequila, Washington, one of City Light's franchise cities. Uh, and I'm relatively certain that's how you actually pronounce the name of that city, but please correct it's not me. not Tequila. It's Tequila. I, uh, if I just say it fast, uh, nobody knows the difference, right? <laughs> Well, just that's what I thought with the half speed and nobody will know. I, I swear I've been on the train and they announce it, but uh, it didn't didn't make an impression. Anyway, they installed four DC fast chargers and one level two charger, which we think is the right ratio of fast chargers to level two chargers. The only recommendation our tiny little rural utility would have for our big sister up north is that they should incorporate some charging speed fees into the EV charging rates. Energy rates alone send the wrong price signals. Let's not focus on our disagreements. Let's celebrate utility-owned charging infrastructure. For more, visit Seattle City Light's Powerlines blog or follow Seattle City Light on Twitter at SEA City Light. I was so excited about this. I called it our favorite article, but it seems like, Ian, you may have disagreement on whether it's our favorite article we've covered. I mean, you don't, every, every parent has a favorite child, but you don't tell the child that it's your favorite. Or well, at least you I mean, tell, you every, tell child. every child you're, you know, they're your favorite. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really the, like, uh, I really like the ratio. Speed. Go ahead. I was just going to say the charging speed fee is it's uh, it's interesting. It's timely and that I just checked our plug share uh, ratings and there was, it wasn't a negative rating, but somebody was very unhappy about our charging speed fee because yeah. uh, you know why? It's because it's not normal, but it should be normal. Should be exactly. Normal. Yep. They're like, well, apparently we should just stay here and uh, tie up the charger and fully charge our vehicle. And uh, yes, like, That's exactly. Yeah. What yes. That is, the, <laughs> yeah. that is the price signal I am sending to you. It's worth, if it's worth the $4 to you to go faster, then use the fast one. If it's not use the slower one. That is it. That is the exact thing I'm trying to communicate. Um. <laughs> I really like the, the, the concept of like 
a lot more DC fast chargers than level two chargers. I think I am not shy about sharing my position that a level two charger is nothing but a payment kiosk and an extension cord. So a DC fast charger is actually something different. Staying on the EV uh, charging front, a recent study by MIT called Personal Vehicle Electrification and Charging Solutions for High Energy Days offers some insight into ideal placement of charging stations to encourage electric vehicle adoption. Researchers use survey data, survey and GPS data to determine high impact areas for charger installations. For more, check out the EV section of publicpower.org. Any, uh, any insights that you have gleaned from that? Are schools a good place to do it? They talked about like along residential roadways as being a good place, which wasn't really explained, but uh, I, basically they're just using GPS data to and, and survey results uh, to justify that. So I actually I really, that they were, go ahead. Ian. I was thinking that they were talking about like uh, residential areas where at home chart, you know, if you don't have a garage, you need a charger on the street. I was wondering about that too, which is a great application for a uh, plug pass style situation. Yeah, that's, uh, I actually really do agree with the concept that residential street charging is, is one of the high value places to put chargers, uh, specifically just outlets. Um, and if you have some easy, low cost way to control those outlets, it's even better. So, well, we could just uh, talk about this briefly, but I've, you know, when you go to downtown Portland or somewhere urban, you, uh, these days you just put in your license plate when you pay for your parking dollar an hour, that sort of thing. I didn't know that. I don't I make it out of the hills very often. I recently. Oh, through parking kitty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you can, you can, you can use it an app. You can put it in on the kiosk. If you want to walk to the kiosk, oh, there, instead oh, of the putting kiosk, out a yeah. deal and putting it in your window. Um, I, I feel like that could be a fairly easy solution to implement for um, EV charging with uh, the, the only extra step being that you enable an outlet when somebody does that. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's so, so nice. Oh my gosh. I mean, for the numbers of times that I had to park in the street back when, you know, back when people would go outside, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a couple um, weeks ago, we covered the U Ubricity story, which is the UK charging services that just incorporated these outlet style chargers into existing like light structures and things, which to me is the business model for really rapid EV uh, charging adoption. For yeah, street, the infrastructure is already there. You just right. got to add an outlet. Yep. Yep. Just very convenient. Okay. So GM won the Super Bowl commercials with their ad starring Will Ferrell punching a globe because Norway has more electric vehicles per capita than the U.S. The commercial announced that GM will have 30 new electric vehicle models by 2025. To learn more from an in-the-know industry expert, we invited DNR's John Morris to join us to talk about what vehicle manufacturers have in store for electric vehicle enthusiasts like us. Hey, John, welcome to Public Power Underground. Hey, Paul, it's great to be here today. I've been watching a lot of your episodes. You guys are doing great work, and uh, it's a real honor for me to be part of the discussion today. I, I always thought, when are they going to do some type of podcast about energy? And um, you guys did it, and I'm, I'm a big fan. You know, there are other podcasts about energy. We're really trying to hit, like, it's a super geeky niche 
of like power departments, right? Like it's all these like really intense topics about Bonneville and resource adequacy. So we think we have like this segment of like people that we like, which are people like you, electric vehicles right in our wheelhouse. I love electric vehicle rate design. Um, and you've helped us on that front before, but would love today to talk about GM's commercial. The Super Bowl was this oh, yeah. past weekend. Uh, they did this big promotion with Will Ferrell saying like GM's coming out with 30 new vehicles by 2025. Got me thinking about what are other vehicle manufacturers doing? So wanted to get your take on what the OEMs are doing. No. Yeah, I think uh, Will Ferrell, I, I wish I had seen that ad in 2018, to be perfectly honest with you, um, but I'm a huge Will Ferrell fan, and when I when I saw the ad, I was like, oh, this could be, this is the ad I've been waiting for, um, yeah. and and certainly someone with his kind of star power, Cadillac, you know, the that, that iconic brand, um, and, and being electric, it, it was, it, it's a, it's a game changer. I, it I is absolutely. I don't and, know if you watch a lot of Netflix, but early in the pandemic, there was this Will Ferrell Eurovision song competition. So it, in my heart, like the uh, the Icelandic and Norwegian, whatever that part of the world is called, maybe I'll edit this out in post. But and Will Ferrell, like, is just emotionally connected to this time. So he felt like the perfect person to sail across the sea and take on Norway. It was awesome. And now, um, just so you, so you know, and your listeners know, um, Norway has responded with Audi and there are uh, two follow-up advertisements that are uh, hilarious. And uh, oh, it, it's just a great kind of dialogue between US of A and, and Norway. And so um, it's fun. It's entertaining. It definitely raises awareness. And that's always a good thing. Yeah, so we heard what Cadillac's doing. They're going to be rolling out some cars and GM more broadly. Who, what are other people doing? What else can you tell us about what's going on with OEMs? Yeah, it's kind of like who's not doing anything um, at this point. I, I wanted to um, acknowledge that the Electric Drive Transportation Association, which is a national uh, EV association, came out with a, a really good kind of timeline and map for, for where the OEMs are and where they're going to be by 2030. And I would say GM most notably, even with the logo change, which they recently uh, launched, I think two or three weeks ago. So it actually looks like a plug. Um, they plan to have more than 20 new battery electric vehicles by 2023. Oh wow! And so that that's that's again a, a seismic shift in in the OEM space. And I think they're all watching Tesla and have seen the the incredible rise of that company. I think they're now valued at a higher valuation rate than Toyota um, today. And it's, it's like now it's catch up time and they've got a lot of work to do. But I think it, again, it's, it is not a point where the OEMs are gonna go back. So we've seen the EV industry kind of with fits and starts, if you will, where we thought, oh, this year it's gonna happen or, or, that, or the next yeah. one or two years it's gonna happen. But with the announcements made from Ford, they're investing 111, I should say this, $11 billion in electrified vehicle products globally by 2022. And they're working to electrify their most popular vehicle, the Ford F-150. Um, so that's another big game changer. Yeah, the, the yeah. electric truck. So Ford's going to come out with an electric 
F-150. I don't yeah. know if you're going to preview like a Jeep uh, SUV or like, it sounds like if GM's going to have 20 of them by 2023, you said, is one of those going to be a truck? Because the trucks is the segment for us rural Americans. Yes, for, for sure. Um, I would say that m- one of the bigger um, transitions for Ford is going to be those uh, transit vans. And they're going to be looking at ways that they can get fleets electrified. So, um, but the, everything we're hearing is that yes, the Ford F-150 will um, be electric or there'll be an electric version of the Ford F-150 that'll be available. We haven't been able to pin down a year for that yet, nor a price. So we've seen some ads. I don't know. I think it was last year where they had the Ford F-150 pulling the train. Um, and it was the electric version pulling a train. And so that was pretty cool. And uh, yeah, I could say we're on the, on the, on the edge of, of truck wars. Uh, the GMC Hummer EV, they're yeah. expecting that to be available by 2022. Base price, 112595 And the first round of pre-orders is already sold out. So wow. um, if you haven't seen that vehicle, there's some pretty crazy... Uh, videos out there of what that vehicle can do, um, including what they call crab walk. And uh, it basically allows the vehicle to move diagonally um, in between tight spaces. But the one thing, um, Paul, I wanted to mention relative to the Hummer EV, um, GMC came out and said that there are specific power requirements for dealerships that want to sell this vehicle. So three-phase power is a minimum requirement. Uh, for GMC dealerships are going to sell the Hummer EV. Which makes a lot of sense. And if, you know, a lot of us have dealerships and service territories and we'll have to think about how to serve those dealerships cost effectively. I think it's really important that we think about that kind of service requirement. I did cut you off when you were talking about Jeep though. Jeep, I'm a Chrysler family. I love my Chrysler brand. So what's Jeep doing? Yeah, Jeep is actually um, between uh, the end of this year and into next year, they are announcing um, they're going to do the Jeep Wrangler 4XE, a Renegade 4XE, and then a Compass 4XE, which to me is uh, they're going to go hybrid first. So okay. um, that's always cool as a new car buyer, EV buyer myself, I'm in the market. Um, I'm, I'm really looking at the hybrid option right now. I don't want to have to have three cars. I want to see what I can do with the range on a hybrid vehicle. And so any any of those more iconic brands like Jeep, Wrangler, Renegade, or Compass that gives me some optionality on, on at least a hybrid to start, I'm personally interested in. Yeah, I love um, that idea, uh, especially yeah. for, especially, I assume it's a Jeep, so it's four-wheel drive, um, yep. so you can get both range and off-road and a lot of that capability. Did you say a year again? I could always go back in the video, but uh, what year was that going to come out? Um, it looks like on the timeline that I, I was um, given permission to use from uh EVDTA, it's between the end of this year and, and early next year. So um, I would say the next uh, 12 months or so, those should be out. Now, luckily, we live in a ZEV state. So uh, Oregon is blessed with, uh, we get a number of vehicles that a lot of other states don't get because they're not ZEV mandated. Okay. And uh, being, again, like in the market, I haven't been to a dealership that I didn't want to go look at a car. I couldn't because there wasn't any inventory yet. So again, I would imagine that um, Jeep will send a number of vehicles to Oregon and Washington. So that's awesome. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a little bit. Of, I'm going to ask you like a little bit of pro, the, like a personal question, deeply personal yeah. question. I hope it's not too personal. But sure. okay, you've got the Tesla truck. 
you've got yep. this Rivian that looks so cool. I love the look of the Rivian and you got the Hummer, you know, which yep. if you had, if, if, and they're all really expensive. So this is a big hypothetical. If money weren't an object, which would you go with? Okay. That's a great question. And uh, no, it's not too personal. I would say if money wasn't an option, um, it's interesting because uh, I've always liked that Rivian and they, their advertising is always, a, I'm a surfer. So they, uh, their ads show surfboards in the top, surfboards in the back. And there's actually this cool um, storage space in between the bed and the cabin that you could put a small, a small surfboard in there. So I like the, um, I like that kind of call to my inner surfer and I, that, that appeals to me, but where the drawback is the base price is 67.5. Um, and so since money is a, a driving right. factor for me, I'm actually more inclined to go with the Tesla. Um, I, uh, base price there is 39,000. And, um, even though it's a little bit different shape, they do claim it to be bulletproof. And I just, I, I would be ecstatic to have one of those in my driveway. I think back to the future, totally disrupting the whole truck look and feel. That um, 80s wedge look, I was, I'm a big fan of that 80s wedge look for sure. It's interesting because I talked to, I sold a motorcycle um, and a guy from Camas, Washington came down in his diesel Ram 3500. And I had to ask, I was like, hey, did you see the ads for that um, Cybertruck? He's like, oh yeah, my wife and I were talking about it last night. He's like, I can't wait to get that thing. Um, so it's, even it's, these trucks are just, they're going to hit that niche market. It's going to yeah. make EVs way more popular and culturally ubiquitous. I'm really excited about it. Very true. Very true. We're excited too. We think it's a game changer. Um, and everything I'm seeing from the OEMs, uh, end of 2022, the uh, Lordstown Endurance, that's going to be great for fleets. And they've got a great boost of, of funding from, I believe, um, Ford. So they're part of this group now, and they're going to do a lot of those uh, fleet vehicles. They're talking utilities all the time about converting um, some of those. So I'd say the the Endurance is, is a kind of a local homegrown American built car truck story. We want to watch and see how it unfolds. Um, the, the Endurance? Ball, yep. Lordstown Endurance. That's um, awesome. Okay. Base price 52.5. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, but for, looks, for a fleet truck, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks more like that traditional kind of truck look and feel. The Bollinger, um, really, really cool design. Great shape. Uh, but again, we, we keep getting pushed back on when it's going to be available in the market. Base price on the Bollinger is 125K. They're taking orders. So uh, I guess that's a good sign, but I'm still uh, waiting to see mode on, on when those will actually be ready for the masses. So yeah, really cool stuff going on in electric vehicles. I really want to have you back. We can talk about some more of this again. Last question though, yeah. what are your odds that the Rivian actually gets made? I, I'm bullish on the Hummer because it's back to its you know GM brand. The F Ford F-150, I think is inevitable. The Tesla Cybertruck, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on. The Rivian is like, ah, yeah. is it actually going to come? It looks really cool. I love their marketing. What's your odds? Or are you I, not allowed to say? You don't have to say. You could just, you, could, you don't have to say. You I'm bullish. I, I'm very confident they're going to come out. Um, I think it's a matter of, again, what space they focus on first. Um, with Amazon being a big, big funder um, of Rivian, that gave me the confidence that, okay. that Rivian's real. Um, I, again, I, I would hedge my bets on, again, maybe more commercial sales uh, before they go mass market, uh, kind of work out some of the kinks, et cetera. But I would, I would say 
my top and and actually Tesla just announced they're having to push back the Cybertruck launch date due to some battery um, uh, material issues. So that one is uh, again going to get pushed back a little bit further out, unfortunately. But I would say I'm, I'm probably again most bullish on going to market and market ready for Tesla. Again, they've been doing this type of um, electric vehicle mass market production for longer, so that gives me the confidence there. The one I'm not, I don't have much much um, faith in right now is the Nikola. I think um, okay. that one's got a long way to go, and and I wouldn't bet on hydrogen um, at this point. So, yeah. but let's talk again about uh, heavy duty trucking. That yeah. um, is is really something I think rural electric co-ops would love to get a piece of. Yeah, that could be a game changer for electric service and trying to think through transport sectors and transport routes. That's got big, that's a big one. If you have a transport route through your territory and you can get an electric semi going through, you're talking about megawatts per charge. Um, it's more to charge the truck than it is to charge the Frito-Lay plant that the potato chips were made in that the truck's carrying. So um, huge opportunities for, for utilities that, that want to grow a little bit um, and maximize the grid. And you know where I'm going with this. Really important, charging speed fees. We have yeah. to price in the cost of serving the load. You can't do this all on the megawatt hours you deliver. That's where we're going to end it. Uh, please right. come back, John. Thank you for being a friend of the underground. Let's keep in Anytime. touch. My pleasure. Sounds good. Eight California Community Choice Aggregators, CCAs, have teamed up to increase their negotiating power, leverage economies of scale, and increase perceived creditworthiness among power suppliers. The new big-time entity serves 2.6 million customers, half, one and two, of the customers of PG&E. For more information, see the full article at greentechmedia.com. On Saturday, Idaho Representative Mike Simpson announced his energy and salmon concept that got scooped by clearing up late last week. We briefly covered the concept uh, last week, but we wanted to summarize more this time while still being respectful uh, that we aren't experts in knowing where the touch points are and we have no interest in getting burnt. The proposal is framed by Representative Simpson as an opportunity to end the salmon wars by providing resources to to the appropriate stakeholders to account for the tremendous value effectively removed from the region by breaching the Lower Snake River dams. Representative Simpson makes clear in his video that he doesn't know whether breaching the dams will allow Idaho salmon to recover, but through a process he outlines as taking over three years, he's come to the conclusion that the status quo is unsustainable. The proposal would create a Columbia Basin Fund of $33.5 billion. It would plan for the removal of the four Lower Snake River dams starting in 2030, and allocated 14 billion for replacement energy to account for both the breaching of the, of the dams and also the lost energy because of the spill requirements to foster salmon returns. It, it is an ambitious plan, whether or not it is ambitious enough to move stakeholders to a solution for ending the salmon wars is a topic we hope to tackle with the help from uh, Friends of the Underground on future editions. And uh, breaking news, despite Despite the fact that the lower Snake River dams are still in place, I just got a text message about this. The Coho Ocean Abundance for next year is forecasted to be 1.732 million, with I think over one and a half million of those going up the Columbia River. So, yeah. um, and that's good. All, that's that's great. That's a, a huge increase, and uh, it shows that that not not uh, the dams are not 
the only effect on on salmon returns obviously ocean conditions are a huge part of that all right bpa hosted the first quarterly business review of fiscal year 2021 which is also the first qbr of john harrison's tenure as administrator it was a good inaugural qbr for johnson's most indicators are healthy. The agency's day's cash on hand and indicator that was a part of the reserve surcharge policy is at 91, which is right in the target range. Each business unit is within their target range as well, which should allow us all to take a little sigh of relief. The most dramatic graphic of the day was a waterfall of rate case net revenues to actual net revenues for the quarter, which shows well above projected operating revenues. BPA CFO Michelle Maneri uh, credited higher than expected trading floor revenues driven by higher than expected market prices than in rate case for the Delta. It was constantly reiterated uh, that we're still early in the year and things can and likely will change before the years behind us. Michelle touched on IPR2 briefly and mentioned we should expect an agenda shortly with the first session in mid-March. Fitch revised its rating outlook from negative to stable and the technical workshop that's a follow-up to the QBR is scheduled for February 16th. The meeting concluded in 36 minutes, which may have been uh, shorter than this debrief, <clears throat> and around 90 participants were on the webinar. Here I am complaining about the length of my uh, lead, and I think you just just went longer. <laughs> I had to read it a little slowly, though. <laughs> <laughs> Public Power Underground, like a great comic book superhero, has a great origin story. It got us wondering, what's the origin story of another great public power institution, the Energy News Digest? Joining us to talk about the oral history of the Energy News Digest is Joel himself, along with Sarah Johnson, Platskin IPUD's own Customer Relations and Services Manager. Well, hi, Sarah. Hi, Joel. Welcome to Public Power Underground. Hello. So, Joel, this is uh, your first time on Public Power Underground. Are you excited to interact with some really geeky people in power departments? I am really excited about this. I, I'll be, I'll, hopefully, I'll be talking to kind of my people through this. This is yeah, excellent. I mean, and what I've learned is we're all your people. We, uh, you, we're all <laughs> like good recipients of Joel's insights. And Sarah, you're you're back. I don't know that uh, I've published broadly any of the episodes you were in. You were an early adopter of Public Power Underground and an early guest. So welcome back. That's right. We tested it out to begin with. We've gotten it honed in now. So I'm excited to be back on one of the new podcast editions and thrilled that we have an award-winning communicator, Joel, with us and a good friend of mine. So it's always nice to see Joel. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really uh, heartwarming for me, an amateur at all things communication, uh, to have two like seasoned awarded uh, professionals on with us. So thank you for joining. Very happy, uh, happy to. Uh, so what I wanted to focus on today is like the origin stories. So Public Power Underground has this origin story of like, we're what happens when power geeks that listen to a lot of podcasts try coping with remote work. Um, and one of the things we use a lot in Public Power Underground is the Energy News Digest. And it got us thinking like, what's that origin story? There's got to be some story behind this. So wanted to get your like oral history of the Energy News Digest, Joel. Well, I... Uh... It actually started out as a personal bet. Uh, I want to say like uh, 2004, I had gone to a communicators conference uh, and uh, there was a roundtable. People were talking about how they got information about what's going on in the industry, 
uh, how it might best be used by people within their utilities uh, to find out about, you know, what's the news. And there was one utility there, a very large utility that would de definitely have the resources for something pretty broad. And they said that, that the best job that they had was two people sitting in a room, snipping out newspapers for about two or three hours in the morning, and then taping the newspaper articles to uh, copy paper and copying them and then sending them through inter-office mail to all their internal folks that were of a certain level of management. And, uh, and I couldn't help but think, first of all, wow, that's really uh, um, you know, labor intensive. Uh, the second thing that I thought was, there's gotta be a more efficient and more broad way of getting information that's useful, useful, timely, because by the time you snip it out of the newspaper, it's really not news anymore, uh, and in and, uh, and more efficient way of getting it around. So when I came back uh, from that conference, I asked my manager at that time, the manager at Mason PUD3 was uh, Ed Blakemore, would you mind if I experimented with this uh, using uh, online services to come up with some sort of a little compendium of, of news stories that might be worthwhile to our employees? And he kind of looked at me in that Ed way and then said, go, sure, why not? Give it a shot. And uh, so what I did is, is I started building RSS feeds uh, based on specific topic searches from Google. And uh, so, for example, I would have one that would be PUD plus electricity or PUD plus telecommunications, et cetera, and then feed those RSS uh, feeds into a reader. And then every morning I'd come in and there'd be the feeds there with information on those certain things. I'd go in, pull out the stories that seemed appropriate, and then copy them into a relatively short, maybe 10-story uh, compendium of news items. And then as it kind of moved along, I started thinking about uh, my old-time radio days uh, <laughs> back in the 1980s and, and the, in the uh, organization of newscasts. And it was basically find your topic areas, fill those topic areas with, air, with stories of interest and then structure them in a, in a hierarchy. And so as the News Digest started uh, um, evolving, the first official edition was in 2005, people in our uh, utility started releasing it into the wild. Basically, hey, you know, I thought you might be interested in this story from this and that. And I started getting people asking to be added to the list and as of now, there are about 629 subscribers. And wow. uh, via the blog uh, site that's on Google, probably about 150 to 200 visit there relatively, relatively regularly. Uh, and uh, it's, I find it very fun. Uh, it, it's right up my alley on stuff I like to do because I'm, I'm an information geek. Uh, but more importantly, I really like sharing it so other people can be a beneficiary of it because the more we know, the better we can serve our customers. Yeah, that's certainly my perspective around like the, the community of public power and this like shared tissue that is really what keeps us bound together in these kind of harder times. Um, and one, one of the things I find very valuable about like your, your content is a cultural phenomenon. Um, and you've been awarded. So Sarah, it sounds like you presented the award to him, the Lifetime Achievement Award. Is that right? I, I did. I got to present at the NWPPA NIC conference 
this very special award to Joel. And I can attest what a difference his news digest made in my world because I started in the industry in 2003 at West Oregon and was putting um, articles together for our board packet. And being able to share Joel's news digest with the board directors was so much easier. So he has definitely made my life easier over the years. Yeah, it's one of the That's things I, you know, what is, yeah, it's one of the things I wanted to interject is how valuable it is for smaller utilities like Klatske and I or West Oregon Electric, um, because we don't have resources to go have this like dedicated person. We, none of us would have ever probably dedicated two people to clip, but it's so valuable for smaller utilities to get some, you know, like the, all of the news in one space. Yeah, you know, I'd like to also draw a, a distinction here also is, is that what the News Digest is and what the News Digest isn't. I mean, first of all, it's a compendium of, of stories and does not draw things like uh, a, a really deep insight on, on, on news stories or commentary or things like that, uh, because there are other publications out there such as uh, uh, Clearing Up and what Energy News Data does that, that is, does take that deep dive and gives uh, people who want to um, um, subscribe to those services that insight that that is much deeper than just taking a look at a news article online, uh, and so just basically the lay of the land of what's going out there on that certain day is what I'm interested in, and uh, that and, and plus of course the, the song of the day. Yeah, of course the song of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so one of one, one of the things. <laughs> Absolutely. So one of the things we do in our in-between segments of our public power desktop segment, we have like the, the typewriter clicking. Uh, and it sounds like back in your day, you had teletypers clipping. What's a teletype? Yeah, well, you know, this, 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 I take a look at, at going through the items that are in the News Digest, very similar to when I worked at KMAS Radio in Shelton. I would show up in the morning about four o'clock go back to the teletype machine, which was basically the Associated Press wire service, and it would have been sitting there all night, tap, tapping away, sit, uh, putting a pile of paper behind the machine of news stories uh, uh, from around the world and around the region. And so I would go back there with my metal ruler and stand over that thing and just start pulling the paper and ripping off the stories I thought were of interest to our local uh, uh, listeners, and then, of course, stories that didn't even matter to them. And by the end of the, of the ripping of the wire, which was probably about half an hour, hour's work, I would know, okay, these are the stories I'm going to cover today, or I would localize these stories, make them of interest locally, and these are the ones I'm not even going to play, play around with. And this is kind of the same thing in my mind, is when I sit down to put together the Energy News Digest, the electrical version of ripping the wire uh, or getting the, the news stories, uh, similar to back in those days. And every time I hear a teletype machine in an old movie or something like that, I just have these flashback memories of the smell of the ink and the dust of the white or the, or the yellow uh, pulp paper on which all this stuff was printed. I love it. Well, uh, that, that was a really great oral history. I'm really glad to have had you on and to talk about that. Um, we are, are avid uh, subscribers to the Energy News Digest. We'd love to get in there at some point. So you think you can work this in? You think you can push out some uh, Public Power Underground? Has a, Classic and IQD has a podcast. <laughs> and I've got some ideas on that. So let's talk offline and, and, and uh, see what I can do to help you out. Uh, we'll work with our communicator, Sarah, to make sure it's done correctly. <laughs> Sound good, Sarah? 
That sounds great. I'll, I can send you the news release I sent Brenda that will be in the NWPPA online. That would do awesome because so. <laughs> that's, that's, that's an ex excellent way of, of getting industry news into the News Digest. Yes. Perfect. Well, we'll work with you. And thank you, Sarah, for being our advocate. We appreciate it in the power department. So thank you both for, for joining us. Uh, thanks for being friends of the underground. And we'll talk to you again. Great. Thank you. Last month's Genesis FCRPS forecast for January was 10,422 average megawatts and the actuals came in at 9,516. A forecast error of 10%. Our power analyst, along with several other nicknames, uh, Ian Bledsoe is sharing his screen right now for those of you tuning in on YouTube. February is up 12% uh, uh, to 11,984 from 10,654. March also up 12% from 8,052 to 8,989. April up 3% from 6,985 to 7,224. May up 3% from 9,392 to 9,668. June up 3% from 10,810 to 11,113. July is up 5% from 10,336 to 10,893. August is up 3% from 7,921 to 8,150. September is practically unchanged, uh, went to 5,918 from 5,899 last month. And uh, power, power analyst confidence is at an all-time low. We'll check back next month when hopefully the power analyst confidence will have improved. Uh, Ian, I just want to say it looks way less cool when you put the graphs in a Word document than when you post them in R with Genesis running. <laughs> So uh, executive producer here providing the feedback that we need some more pizzazz that Genesis provides and all. Yeah, well, Just saying. Got it. Okay. We, we got, I think we have one more. What do you got? Yep. Here we go. Friend of the underground, Matt Shretnick passed along this story last week. Instead of trying to summarize, we're just going to have to read portions verbatim. It's too good to paraphrase. The title of the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office arrest filing is direct quote, not good. Drunk. Suspended felon. In Jetta. Full of beer cans. Backs into patrol car. During stop. Blows 8.22. Arrested on DUII. Cocaine. Firearm charges. A portion of the report reads, as the deputy walked up to contact the driver, the deputy called out to the driver to turn off his car. The driver didn't respond. Instead, the Jetta rolled back about 25 feet, only coming to a stop when it hit the front of the patrol car. Then, quote, a search of the vehicle revealed the following. The bush light can in the cup holder was half full. The jet interior was filled with several empty beer cans. There was a baggie in the center console containing cocaine. We don't need to make any of this up because it goes on. Mr. Cannon, the driver, performed a field sobriety test. When asked how he thought he did, Mr. Cannon responded, not good. Then later, <laughs> provided a breath sample measuring 0.22% blood alcohol concentration. That's BAC. We promise that Public Power Underground isn't turning into a Florida man blog, uh, but shoot, sometimes you got to enjoy the humor of real life stories. So when I first read this story and this lead, I thought it was straight from the script of The Hangover 3. Was, am I the only one? <laughs> it was. Good catch. <laughs> Fun one to end it on. So that's all, all the news we're covering uh, this week. Send us any news jobs, questions, opinions, or corrections to Paul.
on Twitter at a power manager, or if you're a friend of the underground, send any of us a note. Um, any corrections from last week, Paul? Uh, I'm glad you asked, Brian. We did have one correction. Barb Haas finally watched the Karen Heim episode and asked that we correct the record that it was Frank Sinatra, not Bob Hope, that Bob Newhart's debut album uh, bumped from the number one on the Billboard charts. It's a very important correction. Uh, Thank you, Barb, for letting us know. I also wanted to correct the record earlier in this episode with my interview with John Morris. I uh, incorrectly and awkwardly handled uh, referring to Iceland and Norway in that region. I was going for Scandinavian nations. Um, I should have properly referred to them as Nordic. It was awkward. I am correcting the record and uh, uh, Public Power Underground regrets the error. Well, thank you for the uh, candor and correction, Paul. Public Power Underground is a multimedia empire. Not only can you find us on your on our YouTube channel, you can also subscribe, rate, comment, and listen to your favorite performative pandemic public power series through your favorite podcast app. And guess what? You can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter to get notified directly in your inbox when new episodes are published by signing up on Substack at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Franklin PUD's Brian Johnson asked for a title change to the promotion consultant. Public Power Underground agreed as long as he is aware he's going to have to do the same work without any pay change, which is to say, without any pay. Thank you for forwarding the emails along. If you, like Brian, forwarded the show along to Public Power Peers last week, trust us, they loved it. Forward it along again, you wouldn't want them missing out on this great content. If you would like to be removed as a friend of the Underground, you can send Paul an email with the subject line, not really my thing. That's the subject line not really my thing, to Paul Dockery to be removed from the distribution list for the Friends of the Underground. Thanks for tuning in. Public Power Underground is presented by Plug Pass. Plug Pass is an electric vehicle charging program designed by and for commuters. Utility-owned electric vehicle charging infrastructure is where it's at. If your utility is considering adopting public charging program, we're here to answer any questions. We'll provide our firmly held beliefs with passion, energy, and enthusiasm. Plug Pass, it's open source. Plug Pass, it's just an outlet. Public Power Underground is a pandemic diversion for entertainment purposes. It's written, edited, and produced by the Power Department. The views expressed here are our own and not the official views of Klotzkin IPUD, nor of any person or organization affiliated or doing business with Klotzkin IPUD, nor the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Neither Klotzkin IPUD nor those appearing on Public Power Underground generate ad revenue from the episodes. We're just trying to get you to say, ha, once, just once, ha, and we've done our job. And you should hop on that podcast app, give us a five-star rating, and a glowing review. Let's get some more five-star ratings, folks. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch.